Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Church, and thank you for joining us in worship, especially if you are new, maybe you're relatively new, maybe you're just visiting. Uh, we do want to extend a special welcome to you. And any questions, comments, concerns, uh, uh, clarifications on the church, uh, the gospel, who Jesus is, why any of this is important at all, please come and find me after service is over or any one of the other elders. Uh, some will be in the back shaking hands, some will be up here, but we would love to meet you. And you can always send one of us an email as well. Our info is on our website, but please just give us a few days to respond. Uh, but we are here for you. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 10 and verse 1 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke 10 verses 1 through 16 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 868 if you are using a church Bible. Page 868. Luke chapter 10 and verse 1. And before we uh, look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Father, we come before you uh, in thanksgiving that we can worship you and sing to you so freely as a church family. And as we come before your word, would you please sanctify us in the truth? Would you please make us more like Jesus? And teach us to number our days and give to us hearts of wisdom, especially in, in what should be our priorities in this life. Give us an eye to the next one. And would you give to us great joy and a, and a deep understanding of your love and, and all that you are for us in Jesus Christ. Please glorify your son in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are coming off of a text where three... Uh, would-be disciples who were seemingly very eager to follow Jesus have just had their hearts exposed by him. That the one who loves family or home more than Jesus or continues to look back upon their old lifestyles with fondness, that these ones who simply do not desire to put Jesus first in priority really are not understanding what discipleship is all about and what following him really entails. And therefore, they are not fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is not anxious for followers in name only who merely confess with their mouths noble aspirations. He isn't interested in good intentions alone. But Jesus does want those who do follow him to recognize his rightful place within their hearts. And if our last text <clears throat> had been about an internal searching of what it is we value <clears throat> and what we treasure most inside of us, our text this morning is about an outward looking. This is a view outside of us to the mission field at hand. <clears throat> For discipleship is not only about bringing ourselves to see and to recognize the surpassing glory of the Son of God, but to also bring others to see his beauty and his worth as well. This passage is about living on mission, exemplified in 72 followers of Jesus being sent out into the field. And this is a passage which is unique to the book of Luke. Others have Jesus sending out the 12 disciples like Luke covered in the beginning of chapter 9, but Luke shows us here 72 others who are unknown and unnamed and who never held a position of official leadership, were not given the office of apostle, and who did not write a book of the Bible or function as a foundational piece for the church. These are regular ordinary Christians who are on mission, which signals to us, brothers and sisters, that every single one of us, in a sense, is called to the very same thing. Philip Ryken, he says this, every cross-carrying disciple has a cross-proclaiming witness for Christ. 
Every follower of Jesus is called to make followers of Jesus. This is for all of us, not just the pastors, elders, missionaries, and whatnot, but every single one who wants to follow him. And the instructions we find here in this text give to us many principles for living towards this witness. We read in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Jesus wants his followers to feel here the immensity of the mission field, the sheer size of it. And to understand the massive amount of people who do not know Jesus in any kind of saving way at all. Jesus wants us to feel that burden. And to feel our own inadequacy as well. And therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest for help. We ought to view people as Jesus viewed people. Now I think there are uh, many different ways we can view people and even categorize them. If you're in sales, you may view others as potential clients. If you're single, maybe view others as a potential spouse. If you're a coach, you may constantly be combing through the masses of students looking for talent. If you're new to the area, you may look at the people around you in the community trying to discern which one of these you might most naturally form a friendship with. We view people as outside our social world or inside. We categorize people by mutual interests, shared political views, common goals for yourself or your children. But when Jesus looks upon the crowds, these are not his categories at all. Matthew 9, 36, a text similar to ours, he tells this about Jesus, that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus views people as either with a shepherd or without, as either within the kingdom of God or outside of it, as those with saving faith or those who are wandering, harming themselves and headed towards eternal devastation. There are really only two categories in all of humanity that truly and ultimately matter when everything is said and done, in Christ or outside of Christ. And there needs to be in every follower of Jesus an intense realization of the eternal status of the people around us. We have to feel that weight. We need to perceive that deep need. And Jesus here likens this sea of people to a harvest field which is ready to be picked. But there aren't enough hands to pick it. And there aren't enough followers of Christ combing through the planet, plucking people up from the grip of the world, the devil, and the sinfulness of their own hearts. Because this is their true status. This is where they are at. Enslaved and destined to destruction, which is a very heavy reality to take in. And sometimes it is very uh, difficult to view people in this way that Jesus did in this light. And some of us I know are are the only believers in our families. And if we sat down for even just a few minutes to realize the true state of the people we love most, I mean, it can almost be just too much to bear. And I think for the Son of God, he feels this very same thing, which conditions so much of how he lived during his time here on earth. But the way that so many of us choose to handle it is just simply by not thinking about it too much at all. And instead, again, by creating different ways to view people other than saved or perishing. 
We think of friend or stranger, acquaintance, work buddy, et cetera, et cetera. And then our main priority for these relationships becomes work-related or recreation-related or sports-related or child care-related. And what gets us excited then is not the potential of salvation, but our team won. Our candidate got elected. This mandate got lifted. High fives all around. And then our prayers even become much more short-sighted. This upcoming test, the performance review, this career choice, this future spouse, our bid to be accepted on this house, raising the family in such and such a way, which we should be praying for. But one of the reasons why I think we often so struggle with eternal matters is because our vision has become very nearsighted that somehow cancer and salary and body is more important than the soul and eternity, which therefore makes our prayers so much more superficial than they ought to be. And then we cry out to God for the big game with more passion than we do the harvest. We plead with him for that raise with a greater urgency than the salvation of the nations. And so our prayer lives really become this litmus test of what it is we think about and desire the most because if the perishing world really does bother you and breaks your heart like it did Jesus's, then you will plead and plead for more labors and you will beg for more hands on deck and you will be willing to be the answer to your own prayers of living this short life with purpose and on mission when you do interact with the people you know who do not know Jesus Christ. What is it that we each pray most for? What is this litmus test telling you about how you view the people of this world? And I think that the answer to these will really tell us if our eyes have ascended and look beyond merely the temporal to see the harvest as Jesus sees the harvest, or if we suffer from this severe nearsightedness with our hearts so inwardly focused, which makes our eyes look not at the horizon of the lost who are in deep need of laborers. Jesus is telling the 72 to feel the immensity of the mission field right in front of them, which isn't even global at this point. These guys are just being sent to the cities on the way to Jerusalem, but he still wants them to feel even the burden of those and understand their own inadequacies, and therefore pray, pray, pray to the one who has no inadequacy in him at all, whom our verses declare is the Lord of the harvest. I think this is a very key thing to note here, that God is sovereign over this mission field. While we labor, the, the harvest does not depend on us. We're not the little else of the harvest. There is only one Lord who is. And therefore, it is frankly not our job to come up with creative ways to coax people into the kingdom. It's not our calling to come up with fancy strategies. It's our job to merely labor and to gather those whom God saves by his word. For it is God who plants this harvest. It's God who plans to gather in these souls. And if the progress does seem slower than we would have hoped for, we must remember that God is bringing people into his kingdom every day from the nations into salvation. And if this is true, that he is the Lord of the harvest, then the primary solution to the labor shortage is not better recruitment first or first better conferences and coalitions and trainings and events and whatnot, although there is a place for these things. But the very first and primary answer to the problem of a large harvest field with too few hands is to pray to the one who is the author and the creator of this field because he is the one alone who can supply the need. The more we pray to him, 
the more we recognize his authority and sovereignty over all of salvation. And so we must be a people who feel this immensity, know our inadequacy, and pray and pray to the one again who has no inadequacies within him at all. You know, one practical thing that our church staff does is we each have on our phones our alarm set for 11.30 every day, 10 minutes before we usually break for lunch. For me, it goes off on Monday through Saturday because I don't want it going off during the service. And at this time, we pray for more laborers and especially uh, for more here in Hawaii. And what it does for me uh, personally is that it helps me think more like Jesus. It makes me think about heaven and hell every day and those who are in and those who are outside the kingdom. It gives to me a, a more eternal mindset. And it can recalibrate me for what it is that really matters. But, but regardless of what it does for me, I, I really believe these things bring about real change. And it bring up, brings people and salvation that God does send in response to our prayers those who care deeply enough to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty in labor. Or it makes people who are already here roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty in labor. And this can be cyclical that the more we pray for the harvest, the more we think about the harvest. And the more we think about the harvest, the more we pray about the harvest. And the more these things occupy our minds, the more willing we are to labor and to be more calibrated to the will of God. I really do believe that one of the reasons why Jesus stayed so committed on a rail to the Father's will was this view of humanity as sheep without a shepherd and as those who are perishing and don't even know it, this compassion. And one of the reasons why we find Jesus so much in prayer is for this very same reason. Perhaps it is that we would be more like the one who sends us if we only looked at the world of people like he did and pray fervently to the Lord of the harvest for necessary help. We continue in verse 3 at the manner in which Jesus' followers are to do their mission. He says this, Go your way. Behold, I am sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. God is the Lord of the harvest. He's sovereign over the mission field. And these 72 are to conduct themselves, therefore, with an utter dependence upon God for provision and protection. And there's to be this urgency and simplicity about their lives because a mission is the main focus. The image that Jesus gives to them and to us is that of being lambs amongst wolves. And wolves, they eat lambs. I mean, this isn't a picture that you find on a Hallmark card. This is danger. And Jesus is not hiding the fact that being on this mission is a very dangerous thing for the unbelieving world who desperately needs the gospel of Jesus. It's not always friendly to the followers of Jesus. This has been the case throughout history in a variety of ways. But even so, wolves need to be saved. And the image of danger is not meant to dissuade us from the task at hand. The presence of danger is meant for us to rely upon God even more so during this mission. What does the psalmist famously say in Psalm 23? 
even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Brothers and sisters, if the Lord be with us, we can be sheep amongst wolves and not be afraid. And this presence of God with his people is such that those on mission should not rely on money bags more than they do him or on their reserves and safety net more than upon he. And on this very specific short-term trip for these 72, they weren't even supposed to have with them an extra pair of sandals. Now, this isn't a command for all people and for all time. This is very specific to these followers of Jesus because they're going on the way to Jerusalem and Jesus is going to hit these cities ahead after they hit them first. It's not a sin to own a lot of slippers. Otherwise, our family would be in a lot of sin. But while this set of commands is very specific to these 72, I do think that the principles here are very timeless. That the followers of Jesus are to be more concerned with the mission than they are with their bank accounts and more obsessed with taking the gospel to lost people than they are obsessed with what they wear and what they eat and what they drink. And to be more consumed with sheep who are currently without the great shepherd over being consumed with how to continually upgrade their lives by moving from one place to the next and to the next. That the word seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you are proven to be very true if we would only but live by them. That more and more as we do put the first thing first, everything else is going to figure itself out. Our hunger, our appetite for these should not trump our appetite for the gospel going forth. That is timeless and not just specific to these 72. This is a principle for all believers in all time periods because it is these very kinds of things which can so often encumber us and distract us from the ripe harvest of souls who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. If material possessions occupy your interests more than your interest in the Great Commission, then you're doing it wrong. If your trust and your reliance is upon the world's goods, more than it is upon the God who keeps you close to him, even in the valley of the shadow of death, so that you focus more on upgrading your lifestyle. You're doing it wrong. How much more confidently and joyous and purposeful we could all be if we would only understand who the Lord is and how far surpassing his provision be in every single situation. And I think this is especially difficult for us, even more so than those in the first century. We're in a day and an age where we can be on social media and have it bombard us with things that we need to own. Must have purchases. Teas we need to drink to lose weight. Before and after pictures of home renovations. Before and after pictures of body renovations showcasing the new me. Cute little containers that you can put on your counter to display stuff like sugar. Foods you need to try at least one time in your life. And all of this, which isn't necessarily sinful in and of itself, is still at the end of the day, can be what distracts us and sucks up our time and mind space and bandwidth as if somehow all of this recreation is what is of surpassing value more so than a single human soul and therefore must be given our necessary attention. And all of this robs us of the joy of doing the will of the Father and experiencing the deep happiness of even seeing one person come to salvation. J.C. Ryle on these instructions, he says, they ought to remind us of the necessity of simplicity 
and the unworldliness in our daily life. We must beware of thinking too much about our meals, our furniture, our houses, and all those many things which concern the life of the body. We must strive, that takes effort, we must strive to live like people whose first thoughts are about the immortal soul. We must endeavor to pass through the world like people who are not yet at home and are not overwhelmed, to, uh, over much troubled by the fare they meet with on the road and at the inn. Blessed are those who feel like pilgrims and strangers in this life and whose best things are all to come. I don't know if you've ever come across anyone who's almost uh, purely concerned with where they rank in the world. I think it's uh, one of the saddest things we could ever witness as Christians that their identity and value is tied so much to possessions and talent and standing and status. And with each milestone, that buzz hits hard, but it lasts just for a moment. It quickly fades away. And then there's this new milestone that must be had, whose buzz hits hard, but only lasts for a moment. It's the worst kind of hamster wheel. It's exhausting, and it blinds us to the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ given for the salvation of humanity. Church family, don't get on that wheel. If you're on the wheel, jump off of it. People need Jesus Christ. And this mission that Jesus sends his followers on is ultimately a mission of peace. That's verse 5, the giving of peace. That's almost the entire point of the gospel because people are at odds with the God of the universe. And yet a peace is offered to a sinful humanity and a sinless God. That love can be experienced between the creator of the universe and the race who has rejected him. That the kingdom of God is a kingdom characterized by deep reconciliation, which brings to us this peace. And therefore, we as his people are on peacemaking missions to promote this very thing between God and humanity which will in turn promote peace between others as well. There's nothing more important that the world needs to hear, that your friends and family need to hear, that your neighbors need to hear, that they can be at peace with God, whom they are currently at war with, because without him, they are against him. And so there's this pressing urgency so much that if you'll notice the little phrase at the end of verse 4, he says, greet no one on the road. It's almost like you can't even say hi to people because you're so urgent. In the ancient Near East, you say hi, and then they say hi, and they say, how are you doing? Well, how are you doing? And it just keeps going on and on. It seems like the polite thing to do to have a genuine, meaningless conversation. This isn't a justification to be rude to people. This is hitting that note of urgency. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, and niceties and casual conversations, they have a severe opportunity cost. If you spend your time doing that, you can't do other things. And the mission is short. The field is large. And these 72 have to make decisions on what they're going to spend their time and their breath talking about. And Jesus is saying, don't waste a lot of time on things that don't matter. That's what we're always called to do, brothers and sisters. Don't waste our time on a lot of things that don't ultimately matter. And the same is more true today. The world is currently perishing without Jesus. He's closer to his return than at any other point in human history. There's a great area to be witness to, a great harvest that has yet to be reaped. And therefore, our urgency, especially in our own community, white guy, 22, 24,000 people where we live, 
we speak the language, we have the existing relationships, our urgency with the people around us must be so that casual conversation and superficial niceties are not what we ought to be satisfied with, nor distracted by, but we should maximize our influence in this community for the sake of those who are lost. It is so easy to lose this urgency. It's easy to bring our eyes down from this gaze, from eternity to what it is that is merely right in front of me. From heaven and hell to what are we going to eat for lunch? Jesus' instructions to the 72 carry a lot of weight for us as well. And so there is to be this utter dependence upon the Lord of the harvest who is with us even when we are amongst wolves, who is going to provide what we need. So we don't have to be encumbered by thinking about all these earthly things, letting them eat up all our time and thoughts to hinder us from the harvest at hand. And there's to be this simplicity and urgency that marks each follower of Jesus with his mission as the very main focus of the entirety of our lives. Verse 9, we continue. Jesus says this. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Here in these final verses, we have the extreme peril of rejecting the gospel of the kingdom of God. And yet also the high honor of being Jesus' representatives nonetheless. Our Lord does not want us to be under the impression that everyone will turn to Jesus and be saved. There's going to be rejection. That doesn't mean we change the message or the strategy. They are to heal and they are to proclaim the kingdom, just like Jesus did. And these healing miracles, they authenticate the message. They serve as a proof that the kingdom being proclaimed is really in their midst because there is this power that is reversing sin's effects upon the human body, which is a signal to all the people that the fall of humanity and its far-reaching consequences are being pulled back because a rightful king has arrived. This is what many of the miracles demonstrated. Healings reverse sin's effects. Unclean spirits cast out because the works of the devil are being destroyed. And for these cities on the way to Jerusalem, perhaps they never seen in person a miracle like this. They hadn't witnessed Jesus in person, nor was there a written testimony of the mighty works of God in Christ like we all have in the Bible. And so his followers are to demonstrate power and authority before their eyes and with undeniable evidence of something all altogether supernatural in the bodies of healed individuals, the proclamation of the kingdom of God is designed to be utterly convincing and simply irrefutable. And yet it is that Jesus knows that with all of this, people are still going to deny him. And they're going to reject his followers and refuse that message and ultimately reject the kingdom of God. 
And Jesus is very clear that judgment is coming and it is going to be very severe for those who refuse his rule and his reign. It's going to be so severe that it's going to be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 who were famously wicked and had sulfur and fire destroy their cities. If they can reject Jesus with all of this proof, that is an even deeper evil than what occurred in Sodom and Gomorrah. It is even worse because these ones have been exposed to more of God than any other people before them. Because Jesus is not a prophet or a patriarch. Jesus is the son of God in their midst. It is the king himself. And Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin, all of them had had so much privilege with God himself. Jesus spent so much time amongst them that in their rejection of him, they are actually going to be brought lower than pagan nations of old because they spurned that privilege. And brothers and sisters, we will all be judged according to the amount of spiritual light that we've been given and exposed to. These towns of woe have seen healings and miracles. Our generation has seen the cross and the resurrection. We know more about Jesus than they ever did. We understand more about this king who didn't come to only heal the body, but to bleed, suffer, and die to wash away our sin. We see more of Jesus' strength in his resurrection. And those who reject Jesus on this side of the cross are in much more grave sin than any people prior in history. Now, why do we communicate this? Because Jesus commands it. The 72 were rejected. They're supposed to go into the streets and say, even the dust of your towns that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. It's a phrase of judgment. And so that the people here would know and understand what they're doing. They're supposed to let the people who reject know these things for the very worst thing humanity is capable of is rejecting the love of the Son of God. The worst evil is spurning his rightful, just, kind of rule. It is the most severe kind of sin. Jesus' unapologetic, matter-of-fact teaching on the judgment of those who reject him is really a love, an act of love and mercy. It is an act of love to warn somebody to flee from a building on fire. It's an act of love to show people the stakes at hand. One commentator, he notes this, some of the most popular preachers today make a big deal of never talking about sin and judgment. That's not Jesus. Any person who will not speak plainly with you about the state of your soul is not your friend. These people make themselves an enemy of your soul. Any people who will not tell you about the real dangers of a real hell and a coming judgment prove, they prove they care nothing about you even if they tell you smooth things about how wonderful you are and how great you can be, do not believe them, beloved. But the great consolation, even in the face of rejection and mistreatment, is that Jesus, he himself identifies with his people. Look at verse 16 with me again. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me, him who sent me. Do you see how closely Jesus identifies with his people? What they do to you, 
they're doing to Jesus. And this is how close the Son of God is to his followers. It's not the only place this happens in the Bible. When Paul, at the time, was called Saul, was persecuting the other church, trying to throw them in jail and get them killed, Jesus stops him in his tracks in Acts chapter 9. In verse 4, Saul literally falls to the ground, and then he hears his voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Saul, Saul, why are you being mean to my followers? Saul, Saul, these are my missionaries. Stop persecuting them. No, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you see how Jesus unites to his people? In Matthew 25, verse 40, Jesus is speaking on the judgment, and he talks about the weakest, the poorest, the hungriest believers. He says, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. The littlest, most insignificant Christian in need. You give that person a cup of water, it's like you gave Jesus a cup of water. Do you see how much our Savior clings to us? Do you understand this union that he becomes, as it were, one flesh with his people, his church, his bride, and the two shall become one flesh? That's not about man and woman fundamentally. It's about Christ and his church, which men and women, when they get married, point to the greater reality of. We are his bride. We are his. He is ours to the point where anything done to us good or bad, is the equivalent of doing these same things to Jesus. This is the highest honor in the universe. This is the greatest privilege of all, that we can somehow be called Christian, that we are Christ, which we don't understand the half of it yet, but will one day, in increasing fashion, have all of eternity to truly know the wondrous end of our salvation, where we can fully enjoy this union with Jesus, utterly sin-free. And may it be, church family, that the one who is not ashamed to be identified this closely with us, the one who is not ashamed to give himself wholly to us, may it be that we would not be ashamed of him, and that we would give ourselves to him wholly and to his mission with everything that we are. Would you please pray with me? Our Father, we ask that you would help us to see the world as you do. That you would help us to trust in you even if people bare their teeth. Help us to be content with your provision, to travel light, to be urgent, to live simply, and to be filled with joy at our salvation, and to yearn for the joy of seeing others saved as well. Help us to pray. Help us to go out. Help us to feel the weight. Help us to be sent. Help us to labor and give priority to your mission over everything else. Help us to believe the truth of your word more than we live and believe anything else, all for the glory of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.